Thank you for joining me today on We Are Rivers, a podcast where we tell stories and talk issues about the rivers that connect us. I'm Paige Buono, your host. I'm always excited about these episodes. We have such great guests and I always learn a lot, but I'm maybe exceptionally excited about today's episode because I love the monsoon. Today, we're gonna have a little gush, forgive the pun about the monsoon, and we're also gonna dive into some of the latest science. And as is appropriate, given the way the monsoon seems to evade being known, we're gonna think about some outstanding questions and concepts tied to the monsoon that warrant further investigation. I'm joined today by two really exceptional minds who both also happen to have really great laughs. First, we'll hear from Dr. Connie Woodhouse, who came highly recommended by numerous sources when I went in search of a monsoon expert. Dr. Woodhouse is a professor in the School of Geography, Development, and Environment at the University of Arizona, and she also holds joint appointments at the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research and with the School of Geosciences. We'll also talk to John Fleck, the director of the University of New Mexico's Water Resources Program, who's also a writer and observer of conditions in the Southwest. Without further ado, let's get to talking about the monsoon. So, so broadly, I'm actually uh, more of a paleoclimatologist. I use tree rings to study past climate, but I also end up doing a lot of work with um, instrumental climate data, with historical climate records from rain gauges and thermometers, because a lot of times um, understanding those relationships is necessary to, to, to sort of figure out what the trees are telling us. <laughs> and so for this, um, for the project that um, is related to the monsoon, a uh, question that you're asking, I've been actually looking at the relationship between stream flow um, in the Upper River Basin, that includes the Upper Gila, the Salt and the Verde, and monthly precipitation and temperature to try to figure out exactly what it is that controls stream flow. So that's a project that I started um, a couple of years ago with some input from some resource managers and some uh, work with colleagues. Uh, and so that's what we were looking at. So it's interesting to me that these kinds of questions haven't really been addressed. Um, there's been lots of modeling, <laughs> but um, just looking at this, the data and seeing what it tells us. I'll have us dive in to the Gila research a bit more. I guess I'm just curious to um, a little bit of your background and kind of how you came to this research. And are, yeah, were you a kid like with rain gauges and, you know, out, out studying trees? <laughs> No, you know, no, it wasn't, it isn't a story like that at all. I was, you know, I, my family did a lot of, you know, outdoor kinds of things. And so I sort of like the outdoors. <laughs> so I think, but, but maybe, but maybe another part of the story in terms of, I don't know, again, I don't know if this is of interest, but um, after my PhD, I worked in, uh, for NOAA in Boulder and uh, Boulder, Colorado. And I started doing research on tree rings. I started meeting water resource managers and started conversations with them about, you know, how they might find uh, the tree ring records of stream flow useful. And that was during the early 2000s when we were seeing some really incredible drought conditions. And so that kind of was a big um, kind of shift in my research where I wasn't doing just, you know, academic research, doing, you know, looking at past climate, but actually trying to figure out how we could use these records to help resource managers plan for the future. And so that's been a really strong thread in my work. Um, 
since then. And the work that I'm doing now in, in the Gila is, is, is also part of that. So um, Dan Ferguson, as I said, is the director of Clamus, but also my colleague in this project and I got together and we invited a handful of resource managers to have a conversation a couple of years ago just to say, hey, this is what you know we're thinking of doing. Is this kind of research interesting to you? Um, you know, if so, what particular gauges are you interested in? What, you know, what's what are these concerns? Um, it's not like this work will actually make a difference in their day-to-day decision making, but it's, I think it, it sounded like it'd be useful information for them to know about, to understand what's, you know, when, when we see have a wet monsoon, for example, does that mean that we'll have any hope for, for a, you know, more flow than we might expect from a dry winter? So we had that initial meeting. We got some feedback. Um, I worked on uh, sort of articulating some research questions, um, did some research, produced some basic information. And then with another colleague, Brad Udall, um, who's at Colorado State University, he and I worked together on this actual um, piece of research that is, good, is actually it's in review for um, publication right now that sort of dug into these questions about, you know, what is the influence of climate on stream flow um, in a more, you know, academic research, typical research kind of way. So um, this is the kind of research that I like to do, where I'm like getting feedback from people who might actually find this useful, this research useful. So um, that's that's the way that sort of, and, and this piece of research has had presentations along the way. I've done some fact sheets, um, working on a website to make this information available. Besides the academic peer-reviewed uh, journal article that will hopefully be coming out if it gets accepted. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, you'll have to keep us posted. <laughs> I'd love to share it. And yeah, can you talk maybe um, a little bit more just sort of about the high level findings and, and maybe your process to the extent that you can? Yeah, well, it was a really, I mean, in terms of the kind of research that um, is done today on hydroclimate, this was a very simple analysis. I wasn't modeling, you know, no, no big data sets, it was basically just looking at the relationships between monthly precipitation and temperature and stream flow um, over, you know, over the period of the instrumental record, which is, um, it's a little bit different for the three gauges, but it's um, from about 1921 to 2017. So that was, that was sort of the question, you know, what are the controls on stream flow? What role does temperature play? Because temperatures are warming. and you know what kind of implications uh, are there for the future was, was pretty much the, the questions that we asked for this piece of research. And what did what were the? I, and this is always a question I struggle to ask scientists because I know it's sort of an unfair question. But what were the sort of thirty thousand foot view? You know, takeaways and and including maybe the additional questions that it posed. But basically, we found that <clears throat> this part of the Colorado River, this you know the lower Gila River is the is a major lower basin, lower Colorado River basin tributary. So it's an important part of the lower basin. Um, this part of the river system is is kind of different than the upper basin. So, like I said, there's been quantities of work done in the upper basin, um, and those lessons to some extent apply to the lower basin. For example. Um, the cool season precipitation, you know, the winter, the precipitation that falls through late, late fall into the spring is really the most important factor for stream flow, for water year stream flow, I should say, which is um, the water year is different than that calendar year. It's the beginning of October to the end of September. So in terms of that total stream flow, 
Not surprisingly, it's the cool season precipitation, which rules. <laughs> so that's no different in the upper basin and the lower basin. Um, also, temperature is important. Um, it's uh, the season of it uh, uh, is variable among the, the basins, but um, the temperature, and, and I should say that the temperature is the second factor that's important, but it's much, much less important relative to, to cool season precipitation. Um, although arguably it's becoming more important. <laughs> um, and then if you're looking at, you know, uh, what, what's happening, you know, what, what influence does the monsoon have in these kind of analyses, the monsoon just doesn't come out. It just doesn't, you know, compared to those two factors, it just does not, does not reveal itself as being important. <laughs> And, you know, I'm, and again, if, I, if I'm asking a question that scoops or is problematic, feel free to just help me reframe the question. Um, but, you know, I guess I, living in the Southwest, I'm so used to people talking about, you know, these monsoons is critically important, especially when it comes to things like agriculture. Um, and I'm curious, you know, if what we're learning about their relationship with stream flows is um, maybe just a groundwater relationship. Um yeah, maybe help me understand how they can kind of feel so important, but maybe not necessarily show up as having a huge impact in stream flows in the research. Yeah, I, it has to do with the, the, the time of the year that the precipitation occurs. Um, so um, in, during the monsoon season, the temperatures are warmer. And while you may get, um, you know, large amounts of, of rainfall coming down because it's, the temperatures are warmer, uh, a lot of that rain isn't going to make it into the river. So the proportion of the, you know, the rainfall um, that makes it into the river is much less in the summer than it is during the winter. So in the summer, you have evaporation because of warmer temperatures. You have a plant uptake because the plants are all, you know, doing their thing in the summer. Um, so those those things reduce the amount of water that can actually make it into the river. In the winter, in contrast, you have cooler temperatures, so you don't have as much of evaporation. Your plants are mostly dormant, so they're not taking that water up. And also, even in the southwest here, a, a fair amount of our winter precipitation in these watersheds falls with snow. And so it's kind of locked up in the snowpack as sort of a reservoir, which also helps it um, sort of maintain itself. So this is this this is has to do with runoff efficiency. That term efficiency, you know, the efficient kind of you can think of it as how efficient is it, you know, the, the rainfall in terms of making it into the river. And it tends to be the, the runoff efficiency is much lower with with the during the summer than it is during the winter. So because because of that, you, you think oh we have these incredible monsoons and all this water coming you know down and um, the fact of the matter is that. A, a much smaller portion of it actually makes it into the river in the summer than it does in the winter. Again, that's why the winter, the cool season precipitation is really the big factor for, for the larger rivers and in terms of the annual stream flow, the water year stream flow. So that's why in my statistics, it doesn't come up as being important. Um, although in certain years, it can make a difference. So we can't bank on the monsoons we <laughs> to save us. Yeah. Although I have to say, you know, one of the one of the things that's interesting about the monsoon is that, um, you know, first of all, there's there's this interesting thing that I uh, that other people have noted it as well, and I and looking at the numbers in this study, I've seen it is that it, it's there's an interesting 
tendency, as I said, tendency, it's not every year for a dry winter to be followed by a wet summer. And it doesn't happen every year. And there's been a fair amount of research looking at, you know, why does this happen? And to date, there's been no satisfying answer that has really said, well, it's because of this. There's a bunch of ideas out there, but the bottom line is we don't actually know why that happens, but it's fortuitous for us um, here in the Southwest where we do get the monsoon, because um, although I never found a year where you could have a really dry winter and a really wet summer and you go, oh, look, the stream flows above average. I mean, that doesn't really happen, but it does help. I mean, it does um, moderate the impacts of a dry winter. It can offset to some extent the effects of a dry winter. And in terms of, again, I'm talking about uh, the water supply at the end of the water year. So the annual flow, it can like bump it up just a bit. <laughs> so yeah, it's not ever going to save the day. Um, but I, I, I would argue it can make a difference. So for smaller systems, um, it, it might be able to make a difference. And the other thing is if you talk to John Fleck, he could tell you about the Rio Grande, um, which is, um, you know, there's a, a, there's a number of interstate and international compacts on the Rio Grande, but all of them seem to apply to the runoff from the winter. And so the water that comes into the Rio Grande during the summer is considered free water. And this year is very interesting. So I hope you get a, get a chance to talk to him because he can tell you how unusual it is. <laughs> so as you all know, I did talk to John Fleck, who you'll get to meet in just a moment, about the monsoon and the Rio and its impact on the Rio Grande River. Dr. Woodhouse also mentioned Bo Savoma at the Salt River Project, who I didn't have a chance to speak with, but very much hope we can feature on a future episode. In the meantime, to John. So, so my name is John Fleck, and I'm the director of the University of New Mexico Water Resources Program. And I've been a New Mexican for 30 years, grew up in Southern California. So I've always lived um, in the arid, semi-arid um, West, I'm sort of quintessentially a Westerner. My father was an artist who grew up on the East Coast in Pennsylvania, came here as a young man and was just blown away by the magnificence of the Western landscape and came here to make a life. And I'm sort of a child of that decision that my father made more than a half century ago. We spent a lot of time, he was an artist, and we spent a lot of time in my um, childhood, um, coming to places like this. We lived in Los Angeles, coming to places like Albuquerque and Arizona in the desert southwest. And my first experiences with the monsoon traced to that, being a little kid camping, looking at these big storms around coming into the desert where we were. And it was so um, exciting um, to me. And I've had a professional career around water. I was a, a newspaper journalist for um, for a long time. And then became an academic and I write books now about water and teach um, and, and also work actively on water policy and water policy um, governance and solutions. Like how do we fix the mess we're in? Um, but I'm also really interested in the sort of the culture and living this experience of being around aridity and being a, a person of the desert and thinking about our human relationships with water. Um, and the monsoon sort of crystallized a lot of that. We're in this um, in this dry place, and then these deluges come down in this kind of scattered, hit or miss, random way, and bring us this sort of blessing of water. It's a really neat thing. 
It is. And I, um, I read in one of your recent posts, you know, you mentioned that when you were a reporter, people liked to kind of challenge the idea of like, is it a monsoon or is it not a monsoon? And, you know, what's sort of the definition of a monsoon? And um, I would love, you know, maybe let's let's start with sort of the, the scientific definition. And then I'd love to spend a little more time just describing them. Yeah. So um, scientists have, meteorologists have a, a definition, a formal definition of, of a monsoon. And the most classic example of it is the South Asian monsoon. And um, it involves uh, sort of large scale, continental scale wind field reversal, where the prevailing winds um, go through often a very rapid shift from um, blowing from the inland landforms um, out toward the water, toward the ocean, to switching and bringing uh, moist air in from oceans. And so um, in the South Asian monsoon, it's the Himalayas, and they heat up, and the summer heat creates these rising columns of air, these great thermals which suck in water um, off the Indian Ocean, and that's moist water. And, and here... Um, in the southwestern United States and in, in northwestern Mexico, um, it is w- moist air coming off of, generally speaking, the Gulf of California, although the source of the moisture here is complex and we have pieces that come off of the Gulf of Mexico as well. But you, you have this sort of great land mass of the Colorado Plateau heating up in the summer and, and the air sort of rises and pulls in this plume of moisture. And when I was writing about it for the newspaper, um, it was this fun game because by the time I was doing this, we had the internet and we had these tools to monitor the climate on large scales. And you could see the monsoon rainfall patterns marching north up the central mountain chain of, of Northern Mexico. You could see the rains coming our way and they would ebb and flow and they would dance toward us and then go away. And eventually they would get here. And that moment when they arrived, is something like you can feel it in the air here. The air becomes moist. You can feel the moisture in the air in Albuquerque, and then it's monsoon season, and and um, and that's the beginning of it. And and maybe um, you know I want to hear sort of about the role that monsoons played in in the flows of the Rio Grande this summer. And I guess to set us up a little bit, can you talk about the kind of year? the Rio Grande was predicted to have um, before we knew whether or not the monsoons would arrive? Yeah, so um, this was a really bad year on the Rio Grande and was one of those years that was a reminder of what climate change in terms of water in the West looks like. We had a decent snowpack in the mountains um, to the north. It was a decent snowpack, perhaps 80% of normal, um, and the snow just never made it to the river, or a lot of it didn't make it to the river. And this is one of these things that scientists have been predicting for a long time, um, that we would expect reduced what's called runoff efficiency. Combined with a really bad monsoon and a dry fall last year, we were left with really um, lousy soil moisture, the shallow aquifers and the mountain soils going into the winter, Um, And they're like a big dry sponge. And so they soak up the first of the melt. And we lost so much of that water. We didn't lose it. The mountains got it. The shallow aquifers up there got it. It's great for their ecosystem. Didn't make it to to the river. And so we were headed into this this desperately dry um, runoff here on the Rio Grande. Um, A very clear possibility because of that lousy runoff that we could have had the Rio Grande go dry through Albuquerque for the first time in 
nearly four decades. Um, and part of that is a function of river management because one of the ways we keep the river wet is through storage from um, previous years and from big snowpacks in our reservoirs. We had used up all our storage last year. So we didn't have a lot of extra water, sort of bonus water from storage from previous years to bail us out. Um, and the rules about who can store and when and how much are really complicated. Um, and and um, so, but the bottom line was we were looking at lousy runoff and we'd lost the last of our tools to make up for it with storage water. So we were looking at a dry river and I was out in late June scouting out the places in Albuquerque where we expected the river to go dry, um, um, trying to understand the details of how it would happen. Like, this is not something that happens here since I've lived here in the 30 years I've lived here. We've never seen this happen before. And, and you know, I wanted to see it. I wanted to bear witness to this. That's sort of what I do. And, um, and then in, um, uh, got a good shot of rain um, uh, in the last weekend of May, um, and then we just started getting a great monsoon. And um, beginning in late June, we started getting rain. And if you watch the river gauges, which is something that we do, something that I do kind of as a hobby, and I try to teach my students to do, you can see the river, the Rio Grande, dropping and dropping and dropping, and then it'll rain and it'll be a spike. And there was a period of time where we had spikes and the flow would rise up again um, almost every day. Um, and, you know, maybe we'd get three, four days, maybe a week where the river would drop and drop and then the rain would hold it up. Um, and it's a modest amount of total water, but it, for us, it was the difference between um, a dry riverbed and a riverbed that has a little bit of water flowing through the city. Um, and for the irrigators here in central New Mexico, and um, they were looking at running out of water. And when you get a good monsoon, that reduces the evaporation off of their crops. It reduces the irrigation water need. So you not only had a little bit more water in the river and therefore a little bit more water in the irrigation system, but irrigation demands go way down. So it really stretched out the irrigation season from what would have been a disastrous irrigation season to merely a very bad one. And can you talk just a little bit, you know, about, you you mentioned it, but sort of what the monsoons provide. It sounds like some relief um, for agricultural producers, some consistent flows in the river. And, and what does that do for communities? And I'm thinking both human and wildlife and maybe even just the ecology of the river itself. Yeah, so the, the extra water in a year like this is critical to the ecosystem. And it's an ecosystem that's really on the edge, that's really threatened. And it's a fundamentally humanly, human-altered ecosystem. Um, we've changed this river so very, very much from the state of nature. You know, the Rio Grande today is a narrow river channel pin between a couple of levees. For the endangered Rio Grande silvery minnow, all this monsoon water has been critical um, in keeping the river flowing. They're, they're tough little fish. Um, they can survive in very little water, but they can't survive in zero water. Um, but, but for the broader, you know, we have this, this idea that we talk about in the water resources program, the colleagues that I teach with, um, we think about the ribbon of green, this um, uh, green stretches of valley floors, which are common in these desert river valleys. It's a lot easier with the monsoon moisture. It really helps us keep that green. And then one of the things that they will often do is tease us. They'll come for a few days and go away. 
I'll come for a few days and go away. And this year, I was just looking back at some of the um, uh, the data earlier this week. They've kind of been around the whole time. We had one break of about a week, but they've been relatively continuous. And it's not been huge volumes of rain, but almost every day they've been around. And you can see that in the way the river has held up because they're adding a little bit at a different spot each time. It'll be over on the west side. Um, and so it'll come out of those arroyos on the west side. It'll be north of town over Santa Fe and it'll come out of the Santa Fe River. Um, it'll be in different places. And you can see it. And, you know, one of the things we do in the water resources program is spend a lot of time understanding, learning about the different river gauges. And so you can see where the water's coming in. And one gauge will pop up at a different time than another. And you can see then the slug of water moving downstream. But the other really great things, thing about the monsoons is sort of cultural. We just love our rains. And the first rain, people are out in it. You see, we go stand in it. We stand in the rain, you know. John and I gushed, truly gushed, for a long time about the magic of the monsoon and also about his latest and forthcoming book. More on both of those in the show notes. But before we wrap things up with our monsoon episode, I want to turn back to Connie for a better understanding of how climate change might impact the monsoon, what we want to know, and what else she found interesting from her research. Um, in terms of the um, projections for the climate change projections, uh, latest projections I saw for the monsoon are pretty uncertain. It seemed like the thing that people were seeing possibly was a compression of the monsoon season certainly an earlier onset. And maybe that means it goes later into the year, um, but more rain, you know, not necessarily less rain or more rain, but coming down in a shorter period of time. Right. Okay. And do you have um, more sort of questions about monsoons? You know, is there more research? If you were going to dig into them more, what would be sort of the things that you would try to better understand? Well, you know, I'm really fascinated by this sort of inverse relationship where you have a wet winter and dry summer, dry summer, dry winter, wet, you know, what's going on with that? I mean, there's, um, you know, there's, there's some, there were some ideas that, oh, it's related to ENSO, El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is affecting the, you know, the dynamics in the winter different from the summer, but that was kind of discounted. And then it, is it because ENSO tends to switch in sign in the spring or is it land surface feedbacks? You know, that was one that that's still, I mean, I'm, I'm sure all of these still have, have merit, um, but it's not one answer of the other. The land surface feedback is that if you have a, um, a big winter with, with um, you know, the snow stays late um, on, the, on the surface. And so it, it inhibits the surface heating that's needed to get the, on, get the monsoon going. Does that then delay the monsoon? If you delay the monsoon, is it generally drier? So not none of these, none of these ideas by themselves explain this relationship. And so it's probably a combination. <laughs> well, Connie, I don't want to take up a ton more of your time, but I do, you know, I am sure there are questions that I didn't ask um, that maybe you were waiting for other information that would be important to share around sort of what we do and don't understand around monsoons. I think one, th one thing, I and I don't know if this is too detailed for what you're interested in, but one thing that I've come across is that, you know, I was talking about climate change and how we know the temperatures are increasing and will continue to increase. And we're not so sure about the monsoon or even we're not that sure about, uh, I guess we're more sure about precipitation in the, in the Southwest, but um, 
in terms of importance to stream flow, um, the monsoon, the, when, when we have a wet monsoon, we tend to have cooler temperatures just because we have more clouds. Um, and it turns out that summer temperatures um, are, are important in other ways too. And so they can have they can they can have a pretty big impact on stream flow aside from precipitation. So if you think about the monsoon, not just as moisture, but the monsoon kinds of weather, you know, cloudy um, and wet. If you think about the temperature component of the summer, it turns out it's really important. Um, I was looking at a recent study that was talking about um, if you have a hot summer, you can have a couple of impacts. You can have the immediate impact of um, more evaporation, more uptake, uh, more plants transpiring. So you can have drying in that way. Um, but you can also have more long-term drying influences through soil moisture. And so not only have immediate impacts of evaporation from surface water supplies, um, but you can have drying of soil, which then, you know, back in, you know, as you go over the, the course of the seasons through the fall and the winter into the spring, you have a very dry soils like we did this year. Uh, a lot of that runoff left from snow may, may go into the soil instead of going into the river. And so turns out summer temperatures are pretty darn important. And that's kind of linked to the monsoon, um, which we don't really think about when we talk about the monsoon. Perhaps not shockingly, and in some ways really fittingly, trying to pin down the monsoon and the science behind its magic proved more challenging, less clear than I'd even imagined, and in some ways more exciting because of it. In the face of a changing climate where, while change is manifest in the name, certain things feel relatively certain, the warming and the drying, for example, but that the monsoon remains uncertain signals a certain kind of hope engages a continued curiosity and with a healthy dose of realism. If I had to sum up my conversation with Connie and John, I guess I'd say this. The projections for weaker winters are terrifying. The monsoon is magical, and while it may provide much needed reprieve for humans, creatures, forests, and fields alike, it isn't a magic bullet. And we do well to plan as though the monsoon won't arrive and continue just to feel truly odd and maybe even blessed when it does. This podcast was produced by Paige Buono and Faye Hartman, two humans who greatly appreciate your listenership and who welcome your ideas and feedback. Please take a moment to rate and comment, share us with your friends, and keep tuning in. Till next time. <laughs>